I'm really looking forward to these next four weeks as we start to look at some of what uh, Paul's big ideas, things that were really on his heart that he would want to share with us and that he did share with the folks at the Church of Colossae and Colossians as we begin this study over the next four weeks. If you remember, uh, two weeks ago, we left Paul in Damascus, Syria. Uh, That is about 150 miles from his home in Jerusalem. He was there and he had on his way, had had an incredible encounter with Jesus that transformed his life. And we talked about that three weeks ago as we talked about his encounter with Christ. But two weeks ago we were there and, and he was there and he was baffling everybody around because he had gone from this, this persecutor of the church to someone who they were saying was arguing for Christ. So much to the extent that it says that he was proving to everybody that Jesus was the Christ. And, of course, that didn't make some people happy. Some people that used to be on the Paul team didn't like that. And so it says the Jews rose up and they started to come up with a plan to try to kill Paul. At that time, Saul. And, it's, and so he went, and as he was, as he was uh, teaching and preaching and convincing folks, uh, he also needed to leave town. So in the middle of the night, uh, threw a hole in the wall, snuck him out, and Paul got out of town. Over the next years, the apostle Paul became what we might know as the greatest missionary in the history of the church. He wrote much of our New Testament. He started churches, and he traveled, and it sounds very Glamorous, doesn't it? Sounds like, wow, that had to be fun. I wish I could have been on the Paul team. Well, let me me tell you from Paul's words how he describes it in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says this, I have worked harder, been put in prison more often, been whipped times without number, and faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and day adrift at sea. Six times I was stranded in a blizzard on Route 90. (laughs) Whoops. Okay. Okay, that part wasn't Holy Scripture. But he might have been. Picking up, I have traveled on many long journeys. I have faced danger from rivers and robbers. I have faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as the Gentiles. I have faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, and on the seas. And I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers, but are not. I have worked hard and long, endured many sleepless nights. I have been hungry and thirsty and have gone without food. I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Kind of takes away some of the glamour of these missionary trips, doesn't it? So Paul, through these 25 years, served his Lord. He was a missionary, and now we catch up with him about 25 years later. He is in prison, most likely a Roman prison right after one of these shipwrecks. And he's sharing his heart with churches. And one of the churches that he writes to is this church at Colossae. 
And we have a map here. You can see where Colossae was. It was there. That's Asia Minor, uh, modern-day Turkey. And you see, you know, Greece and then over Italy. And you see Jerusalem. He's much further now than 150 miles from Jerusalem. He's in Rome. And he's writing to this church at Colossae, a church that he probably never visited from everything we know. He didn't start this church, actually. So these are people that were probably somewhat unfamiliar to him. It was a church that was having some problems, although we really don't get a good feel for what the big problems might have been because uh, scholars have argued for years or, or debated what these problems may be. We see little problems coming up, but probably related to some of the traditions and beliefs of the pagans and even some of the Jewish uh, traditions that might have been in that territory. And we see glimpses of them as we study this book. It was a, um, an unimportant city. Didn't used to be. Four or five hundred years before this, it was a major metropolis because trade routes went through it. But now they've kind of shifted and, and Ephesus and Laodicea and some of those cities became major cities. And so Paul is writing to um, what we might refer to as a hole-in-the-wall town. But they were, they were important to him because these were God's people. The church was likely started. In fact, we know it was started from uh, individuals who were, I would say, on Paul's team. They were part of his his team, and, and they would go out as he probably was in Ephesus. He, and we, we know he sent out people, and that might have been one of the times that this church was started, as they went out and, and spread the gospel and started new churches. And because we don't really know what the major problem is, and be, maybe because he's not as personal with these folks because he doesn't know most of them near as intimately as he might some of the other churches, the writings in Colossians, and by the way, I'll probably say Galatians a couple times. They sound so alike. So if I say Galatians, I mean Colossians, okay? Uh, the, right, the, the, the writings of Colossians are somewhat general in nature. They're, they're, they're a little more, not, not specifically dealing with this problem. Here's how you do this. Here's how you do this. But they're more general, which makes us a great place to pick up some of Paul's major ideas, or as I'm calling, his big ideas. And so over these next weeks, we're going to look at Paul's big ideas as we walk through Colossians and see what does he have to say for us. And as Paul comes to uh, write this letter, where else would he start? 25 years of reflecting on his heart and what's happened to him. What is most important? And where would his initial, initial uh, interaction with these folks be? But on what I'm calling big idea number one, the supremacy of Christ. In fact, it would have started probably when he was on his uh, path to Damascus, when he said, when Christ appeared to him, and he said, who are you, Lord? Really, that's the question that, that Paul has been dealing with and what Paul shares with people. He said, if we're going to start somewhere, my first big idea is the supremacy of Christ. So you say, Pastor, where did you come up with that title? Well, the editors of my book, of my Bible, uh, write in titles of certain sections, and right above this, they write the supremacy of Christ. I say, hey, that sounds like a pretty good title. <laughs> because it's true, and it's a message that Paul wants us to realize today. So I'm going to read, read beginning in chapter 15 of verse 1 of Colossians. I'm going to read all the way through uh, verse 23. And listen to the message that Paul wants to share. His big idea about this person, Jesus Christ, who appeared to him on the road to Damascus. He says this. The Son is the image of the invisible God. 
the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God, and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. So Paul starts his defense or his big idea of who is Christ? Who are you, Jesus? And he's laying it out for these Christians here at Colossae. And he says this right off the bat. He says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now, I don't know how many of you have had experiences with invisible people. I have. When I was 10 or 12, 13, 14 year old, we would play softball or baseball or wiffle ball. And we never had enough guys. You know, you only had four or five people to play. So you get a hit and I'd run to second base. But then it was my time to bat again. So I'd run in, I'd say, invisible man on second. <laughs> invisible man on second. Sometimes we'd say ghost men, ghost men on second. You know, the thing about it, my invisible man, he was fast. <laughs> I'd be up to bat, my brother would be pitching. I said, hey, my invisible man just stole third. <laughs> invisible. You know, we have fun and we think about this invisible, but it's, 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 it's the way God has been and had been for millennia. In fact, uh, John, Jesus, when he's, or John, when he speaks in John 1.18, he says this, no man has ever seen God. God himself said it in Exodus 33 when he's talking to Moses and the Israelites. He says, you know, you, you, can't, you can't look at my face. No one will see God and live. And so up to this time, God had been invisible. And there's always an excitement. There's always joy. There's always something special when something that had been invisible becomes visible. When something that was unseen becomes seen. I was looking back and thinking about 1990 when the Hubble telescope went up. And all of a sudden, we could see things that we've never seen before. Things that were invisible became visible. And it just exploded science. It was about 19 years later, I think it was 2009, there was another telescope that went up, circulated, circulated, went, around, went around the earth um, about at 300 miles. And it, was, it, didn't, it didn't have the life expectancy of, of, of Hubble, but it was a brand new telescope, and it was called the WISE Telescope because it was a, it was a, a wide field infrared survey explorer. 
And using this new infrared technology, it could look out into the heavens and find things that had never been seen before. In fact, most telescopes and most, most uh, times we're looking, we're looking for heat and light. This was looking for cool and dark. And it could find things. It found, in fact, in the first year, it found 25,000 asteroids that they never knew existed. First time, something that had been invisible had been seen. A moon, asteroids, comets, dust fields, even a galaxy that had never been seen before. In 2009, for the first time, had been invisible. Now it's visible. The same year, in 2009, Harvard scientists, chemists, did just the opposite. Instead of looking big, they looked small. They had a new microscope. And there was a new way of looking at that microscope. And they started looking, and, and they could find things that have no fluorescent. They could finally see. And they started discovering molecules in living beings that they never had seen before. And they're all excited, and they're saying, this is going to be transformed science, and they couldn't wait to get the word out. We have these new things we can see that we never saw before. And here comes Paul, and he says, Jesus is the image of the invisible. Isn't that exciting? In fact, the writer of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says this. He said, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact, exact representation of his being. Jesus Christ is the exact representation of God. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen God. In fact, he said that to his disciples in John 14. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now, that's a bold statement. Paul, this was a big idea for Paul. This isn't just in Colossians and in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4, he says, Christ is the image of God. Paul knew he had been with God. The disciples knew they had been with God. Why else would you give up your life? You know, when you live with somebody for three years, you get to know if they're not God. My wife and I have been married for 37 years. Do you know how long it took her to figure out I wasn't God? <laughs> Not very long. Not very long. They lived with him. They saw him. They died for him because they were convinced that when they had seen Jesus, they had seen God. Paul says, you, Jesus is the image of who was previously invisible, God. Hebrews said he is the exact representation of God. So when you see Jesus, you see God. So when you look at Jesus, what do you see? What does Jesus tell us about God? Is he powerful? I remember Jesus speaking and the storm stopped. The waves, the winds obey him. What manner of man is this? Powerful. Diseases. He can heal diseases like that. Blind see, lame walk. Jesus can heal. Is he powerful? How about death? Ask Lazarus. Is Jesus Christ powerful? What does that tell you about God? What about Satan himself? Does Jesus have powerful power over demons? Cast him out and they're gone. Here is a man who has power over nature, who has power over disease, who has power over death, who has power over Satan. That's who God is. 
He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I'm the exact representation. If I have power, he has power. And he's all powerful. How about, does he know all things? Oh, my. All through the Bible, he says, he knew what they were thinking. In fact, the woman at the well in John chapter 4, I believe it is, says, I went and got her friends, and he says, this guy has told me things I've been doing all my life. He knows it. He knew it. He knew it. Is he, is he everywhere? Well, for a few years, Jesus limited himself. But you know, when he left the earth, he said this, go into all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples. And he, then he says, and lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. I will never leave you or forsake you. I am everywhere. God is everywhere. So God is powerful. He's, he knows all. He, he sees all. But what else do we know about God from Jesus? I think he's merciful. How about the woman caught in adultery? Jesus Christ, in all his mercy, reaches out and forgives. How about compassionate? The Bible tells us several times, and I think of one where he had compassion on the crowds. And he said, hey, feed these guys. <laughs> Jesus Christ is compassionate. He's kind to children, to sinners, to tax collectors and others. So I see this picture of God right before us who was previously invisible, but now we see him. And we see him as this kind, loving, just, merciful, powerful, all-knowing God. And we learn about him. It's hard to fool people. They would have figured it out if Jesus wasn't God. But Jesus is God. So the first thing Paul teaches us in this scripture is Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The second thing, the second big part of this is that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. Same verse. Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. Now this can get a little tricky. In fact, if you've had a Jehovah's Witness at your door, uh, how many pe people love, no, never mind, um, if you've had a Jehovah's Witness at your door, they've probably come up and said, this verse says that Jesus was created. And if he was created, he's not God because he's born. And completely misunderstanding and misinterpreting Scripture. Firstborn, this is not so much about being born as it is much about being an heir. An heir to the power and the authority because you are the creator. In fact, this word for firstborn is used 130 times in the Septuagint, which is the Greek, Greek translation of the Jewish scriptures. 130 times it's used. Almost every time it's used in, in, in describing status and power. The firstborn has rights. And especially in that society, the firstborn had rights. They had status. They had power. Jesus Christ, as that scripture says, has supremacy. In fact, Paul expands on this in verse 16, that next verse. He says, for in him, all things were created. For, this is, okay, you're telling me Jesus was, was, was created? No, this says Jesus created everything. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all things. Did you get that? All things have been created through him and for him, he has supremacy over everything. He's saying here he has supremacy over life because he's the creator of life. 
It also says in here he's the firstborn of the dead. He has supremacy over death because he conquered death. And it also says he has supremacy over the church because the scripture tells us he is the head of the church, the body. Jesus Christ is supreme. He has supremacy. He is the head of the church. How important was that to Paul? He said, this this man, this Christ, is made in the image, or he is the image of God. And he's the firstborn of creation. And number three, Jesus holds all things together. Or as I like to say, the cosmic glue. (laughs) Jesus is the cosmic glue. He is not only just creator, but he is sustainer. He keeps things going. When those scientists are looking through that telescope and they see those planets in, in, their, in their orbit and they see all these things that can be predicted precisely, there is some force, somebody is keeping that going. Back then, some would say Zeus is in charge. He's keeping everything in order. He's a sustainer. Or maybe this logos, which is the Greek knowledge, wisdom, uh, as part of the universe, uh, you know, Mother Nature just keeps it going. Paul says, no, 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 no. The creator is the one that you're looking at when you look through those telescopes. And when you look through that microscope and you see those molecules that you never saw before, it's the creator that's placed them there and has them working just right to do just what they're supposed to do. That's the God we know. In fact, um, Hebrews 1.3 says it this way, adding to what we read earlier. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining, sustaining all things by his powerful word. That's our God. That's Jesus Christ that Paul is talking about here. And finally, he's the image of God, he's the firstborn, and he holds all things together. And finally, Paul says this, God was pleased to have all, get that, all his fullness, his completeness, nothing missing, nothing lacking, dwell in Jesus. Jesus is not God Jr. He's not the second string. He said all of God's Fullness is in Jesus. There is nothing lacking. Why is this message so powerful to Paul? Because he met this Christ on the road. It changed his life. It transformed him. And as he started studying the scriptures, it was plain to him, Jesus was God. In fact, he studied and he preached, Jesus is the Lord. He is God. He is the Messiah. All of his fullness, all of it, all of it. But you know what? This is all good stuff. It's great stuff. It's transforming stuff. But I still, you still got to ask the question, so what? So what? So God comes, and he's powerful, and he comes to earth. What's the significance? What's the significance of this? What, what difference does it make that God comes and lives in this man, Jesus Christ? Why did he come? Maybe he just wanted to check us out, you know? (laughs) Um, 
Maybe it was an inspection. They were thinking Jesus came to inspect us, see what's going on. Maybe he came to punish us or reward us. Maybe he just needed a vacation. You know, he's never seen the Grand Canyon up close. He's always up there. <laughs> oh, he wasn't the Grand Canyon. He's never seen the Holy Land up close. Oh, so this is where I sent everybody, you know. It's, wow. No. <laughs> what's, what's the significance of what we've just been saying? Because this is powerful stuff. It's major stuff. Fortunately, Paul tells us right here the significance. And it starts in verse 19 and 20. He says this. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is shocking twist in the story, isn't it? This is a bombshell. God, he has just explained how Jesus Christ is God. Everything in God is in Christ. And why, why, why? It's to come and make peace through his blood on the cross. Wow. That's why he came. He came to bring reconcilement to himself. It was so obvious, so obvious to those around that this man was the God, was the Christ and, the, and God. In fact, even, even, at, even at his death, you remember in, both in Matthew and Mark tells a story, right when Jesus died, some amazing things happened. Earthquakes, tombs opening and people coming out, the, the curtain and the, and the veil in the temple ripped in half. Things that were happening and people were looking around and saying, this is not usual. And the centurions and those that were guarding Jesus looked around and they said, surely this man was the son of God. Surely he was the son of God. Boy, how would you like to have been in their shoes after that? And what did we just do? Wow. He's the son of God who came. And that's why this is a big deal. This is why this is Paul's first big idea. It's because Jesus Christ is supreme. But he's supreme not only because who he is, but what he did. What he did. Paul explains, he goes on and says, once you were alienated from God, you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. You know, this alienated here is a permanent separation. The, the word used there is permanent. There, there is, it's not going to be restored. But the next verse says, but, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to you every, every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Second Corinthians 5 says, Christ has reconciled himself to us. This was a big deal to Paul. He knew what it was to be separated from God. He knew what it was to have that permanent separation. And Christ, who came through his blood, offered himself. Said we are separated by our behavior, our rebellion in Christ. Matt Chandler, pastor in Texas, 
talks about this alienation and how we, we turn, as Romans says, we turn to the created things. We love all the things that created rather than the creator. And Jesus here is presented as the creator. But yet we, we follow after the created things. Matt calls this the cul-de-sac of stupidity. <laughs> the cul-de-sac of stupidity. We live in the cul-de-sac of stupidity. Keep chasing after the created things when it's the creator that we need to be going after. We chase after this and that, thinking it's going to satisfy. And Paul is saying, no, only one thing can satisfy is Jesus Christ. Quit going after all these other things through your behavior and rebellion. Follow after me. That's the gospel. This is the gospel that you have heard and that has been proclaimed. What gospel is that? Romans 1.16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation. The Jew first and then the Gentile. It's that gospel. It's this gospel of Jesus Christ who said, I have come. If you've seen God, you've seen me. My disciples can tell you that they lived with me. Paul can tell you that he had an experience with me. And all those who have walked with him through centuries can tell you Jesus Christ is God. And he's come as a servant and died on a cross. And Paul says, I have become a servant to him. Paul's message in this first big idea is that society tells us, even back then in in those Greek areas and Roman areas, people were saying, Jesus Christ isn't who he says he is. Jesus Christ isn't God. Jesus Christ is a nice guy. He's a good teacher. And Paul says, no, no, no. He showed us the image of who was previously invisible. He is the firstborn and has all the authority and all the power that goes with it. He holds all things together. And he is fully, wholly, completely, 100% God. That's who we worship. That's who changes lives. Only Christ. Only Christ. Christ alone. Cornerstone. Stand with me, and we're going to sing just a little bit of this song because it's a it's a refresher in our heart, in our minds that Christ is supreme, supreme in our lives. And if He isn't in your life, now's a good time. And after we're done His service, if you want to come now, you can come pray at the altars. Gabe and I will be up front here. We'd love to talk with you. But let's just sing Christ alone and celebrate that He is our cornerstone. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. Christ alone, Christ alone, cornerstone, the weak made strong 
in the Savior's love through the storm he is Lord Lord of all come on let's sing that again Christ alone Christ alone cornerstone the weak made strong in the Savior's love through the storm He is Lord Lord of all you know in the that section of scripture he closes out in verse 27 Paul does he says, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this, of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Isn't that amazing? The Christ, the God who created, the God who is the perfect image of the Father, the God who is supreme, the God who has all the fullness of the Father, lives in you and lives in me. Christ in you, the hope of glory. As you go this morning, Think of that. I have Christ in me. And we just heard an amazing description of who he is. He is in me. Be empowered by that. Be strengthened by that. Be encouraged by that. And if he's not in you, come talk with us. We'd love to have that discussion with you. Invite you next week. Next week, we're going to take the next big idea that we see in Colossians from Paul. And it's that we have freedom through Christ. So if you know somebody or you have a friend or a family member who's chained up and bound up in bondage, invite them. We're going to have a great time looking at Paul's next big idea. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your mercy and love. And Lord, that you are King of kings, Lord of lords, cornerstone in our lives. And Father, we're, we're so blessed that we can live in this nation and we can share and we can take advantage of all the opportunities we have to live for you. Help us to do that. Help us not to take it for granted. Help us to have boldness in our speech. Help us, Lord, to understand that it is Christ, the living God who lives in us. Christ in me, Christ in everyone, the hope of glory. Help us to go, be your ambassadors. Take this ministry of reconciliation that Jesus Christ has begun and take it to those in our communities and those in our families and in our, in our neighborhoods. May we be shining lights of this message. May Jesus Christ be lifted up. May be all people be drawn to him through our lives. Go with us now. Watch us as we go. Protect us on the roads and we'll give you honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed.